Yet, oh, something? Bingo. Cool. All right, so it's good to be here. Yeah, I don't live far, and I love Pacifica. I love driving down here. This is actually one of the places I come when I have a day off, and I just want to hang out at the beach. And so thanks for letting me come and share from the Bible with you. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 34. And so if you want to open the Bible and look at that, I'm just going to read Psalm 34, and I would love for you to follow along before we get started. And we're going to be hanging out in Psalm 34 today. And yeah, it'll be great. Let me read Psalm 34. If you got one of these paperbacks, it's page 297. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord." What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 34. I don't know if you realize it, but the book of Psalms is actually this collection of 150 songs or poems that were designed to be read aloud, to be sung aloud. They were the hymn book of the early church. Jewish people, before uh, there was a church, sung the Psalms out loud together at the temple and in synagogues. Early Christians would carry on this practice as well. And for 2,000 years of church history, Christians have been reciting and singing and speaking to one another the Psalms. Sometimes it's called the Psalter, the collection of them. And this was a real dominant way that people spoke and, spoke and, and prayed the Psalms. And today's modern church, to a large extent, has lost that practice. And I think we're kind of the worst for it. Uh, it's not that we don't have great worship music. I love worship music. I love different ways we pray extemporaneously and just from our hearts. But I also love getting a chance to read the Psalms together, to use the Psalms as a template for our own prayers. And I think if we ignore the Psalms, we're missing out on this incredible tool that God has given us uh, to know Him, to, to learn to pray, and to see ourselves and our world transformed. I really do believe that about the Psalms. And because when we read the Psalms, we learn something about God, but we also learn something about ourselves. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, he once said this of the Psalms. He said this, he said, they set out in the briefest and the most beautiful form all that is to be found in the Bible. The Psalter, it's the Psalms, is the favorite book of all the saints. Each person, whatever his circumstances may be, find in the Psalms words which are appropriate to the circumstances in which he finds himself and meets his needs as adequately as if they were composed. What Luther is saying there 
is that there's something unique about the Psalms. That even though we read, when we read them, we read someone else's words, we read someone else's song that's born out of someone else's experience, we often find our own words there. We often find our own hearts being articulated, our own stories, our own feelings, our own experiences reflected in the text. And so the Psalms are this kind of divine invitation from God and from the author to pray their words, to learn from another's experience, and to do, in doing so, kind of find your own experience, your own desires, your own words as well. And this is very true of Psalm 34. Author is David. Uh, if you're familiar with David in the Bible, he's a very important figure in the Old Testament. And, and this psalm was specifically and sort of deliberately written by David. It's not uh, something that someone found in a journal and put in here. No, a specific instance happened in David's life, and he wrote this song to teach us, to help us, the reader, on our journey with God. It actually says this in a bit. Um, it, was, it was composed by David with us in mind. It was crafted deliberately to invite us into David's story into David's experience with God so that we might learn what he's learned, that we might taste what he's tasted, that we might know God the way that David knew God. And so what's Psalm 34 all about? We're kind of going to get technical for a minute. Uh, we, get a, we get a hint about this psalm when we see the structure of it. And none of us read, did anyone here read Hebrew? I don't either. Um, but if you read Hebrew, you might know this. Um, I'm assuming most of us aren't hanging out reading ancient Hebrew poetry. But there's a unique way that this psalm is structured, okay? It's organized as a Hebrew acrostic poem. Does that make any sense at all? That might just sound like googly book. Let me explain. So the, the first verse, word of each verse here would, be, would start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So for instance, if it was English, it would be the number, verse number one starts the letter A. Verse number two starts the letter B, all the way through the alphabet. That's the way this psalm is organized. And it might seem a little bit weird, a little bit childish, like why are we organizing it like that? But I feel like we have rhyming words like Dr. Seuss, so maybe we shouldn't be too critical with how Hebrew poetry is organized. Um, and so we have this Hebrew acrostic poem, and there are two verses in, in Psalm 34 that don't fit this pattern. So it would be like A, B, C, D, E, F, X, G, you know what I'm saying, like that. And it's kind of interesting. Why is that the case? It seems like there's something deliberate the author's doing, and we're going to come back to those. It's verse 6 and verse 22 if you want to kind of make a note there and say, why don't these ones follow that pattern? It's interesting. The second unique thing about this psalm is that the purpose of the psalm is found in the very middle of the text, and it's reinforced with repetition. So uh, another characteristic of Hebrew poetry is that the most important idea, the big idea, the thesis, the dominant idea, the purpose, is often found in the center of a text, not in the introduction or the conclusion. So if you uh, grew up in the West and you have Western teachers, you learned English, maybe you remember, you know, state your thesis in the beginning, restate it in the conclusion. Are there any students here today that are like, oh, I hate that, I'm used to that, yeah, I, I have to do that all the time. And so Hebrew middle school teachers, they would tell their students, right, put the thesis in the middle, right in the center of the text. That's how this is a little bit different. And so we find in the middle of this psalm, verse 11, and David says this, this is the purpose and the point of this psalm, come, O children... Listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. That's the purpose. That's the big idea that he's, he's, he's wrestling with in this text. And it sounds a little ominous, right? Come to me. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. It's not a, a word or a language that we use very often. But that appears to be the point, to teach us, the reader, about the importance of fearing God. David addresses the reader, right? He kind of steps out and says to them, come to me, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And that idea of fear, it's repeated in the psalm. The word fear is actually one of the most repeated words in this, in Psalm 34. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 7, 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 3, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is a passage about fear, about what we should fear and about what we shouldn't fear. And that idea of the fear of the Lord, if you have read the Bible, it's actually a pretty uh, significant common topic. The word fear is connected to God over 300 times in the Bible. Uh, if you read the book of Proverbs especially, it's in there a lot. Uh, for example, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But you might think fear of the Lord, Old Testament concept. What does Jesus have to say about this? Jesus says this, Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Strong words from Jesus, right? Like no inspirational cups and posters uh, with that statement. You don't see that, right? So what is that biblical idea of the fear of the Lord? Why does Jesus talk about it? Why is it so prevalent in the Bible? Why does David invite us to come and to learn from him the fear of the Lord in Psalm 34? If I was to take kind of a big summary of what the Bible has to teach about fearing God, I would say that it has less to do with being scared. Oh, that's, there's a bit of component of God's holiness there, but it has much more to do with putting God in the place of highest priority. In fact, just like Jesus does, the biblical authors, they're often contrasting potential fears. Like, instead of being afraid of this, fear God. Instead of fearing that, fear the Lord. It's about priority. And Jesus says, don't, don't fear the people who can persecute you on earth. Instead, fear God. Don't worry about what the people around you think. Instead, worry about God thinks. Moses, don't worry about what the Egyptians think. Fear me. There is often this comparative element in the Bible's teaching on fearing God. There, there's almost this assumption that as humans, we're, we're going to be afraid, and so we should make the thing we're afraid of God and not something else. And the Bible teaches that God himself, he should be man's highest authority, our greatest fear, our highest priority, not what others think, not even what we ourselves think. Our greatest motivation should be to care about what God thinks. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to put him first in everything, to place him as the highest and the most important thing in our lives and to live accordingly. That's to live according to the fear of the Lord. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this or heard this or probably, but you know, you hear Christians are often accused of thinking that they are right and everyone else is wrong, right? Do you ever hear this maybe in a workplace? I don't think I don't like about Christians. They think they're right and everybody else is wrong. And in a pluralistic society where you have lots of different people who believe different things, there, there's, there's nothing, um, there's no greater sin than thinking you're right and everyone else is wrong. But what I love about Christianity is that it's not an admission that we are right, but that we are wrong, <laughs> And not, and not just us, but everywhere. We are all wrong, but God is right. It's a, it's a subtle nuance, but Christians shouldn't be claiming to have all the answers, but we should be pointing people to the God who does. That's an implication of living out of the fear of the Lord. And so one of the things it means to, do, to fear the Lord is to put him above everything else, to do what he wants and not what we want, to believe what he says is true, not what we think is true, to not let our desires and thoughts govern us, but to submit ourselves to God because he has proven himself faithful and reliable. This is what it means to fear the Lord. But I believe that if we're honest, um, I think most of us, maybe if we're followers of Jesus, we could say like, yeah, amen, I get that. The idea of fearing God, I'm for that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. But we also might recognize, if we're really honest, how difficult that is. Our own lives are often filled with fearing something other than God. You might label it worry, anxiety, you might walk around fearing or prioritizing what coworkers think, our boss thinks. We may 
put our own selfish desires above God. You might wake up in the middle of the night, I've had this moment for sure, fearing about financial stress, fearing about your relational status, am I ever going to meet that person? Is our marriage going to work out? We fear our families, we fear about work, we are afraid because of our own health. And if we get really honest, we might admit that often what's even driving us or motivating us, even uh, subconsciously, is fear. It's the fear of man, it's the fear of missing out, it's the fear of debt, it's the fear of poverty, it's the fear of insignificance, it's the fear of loneliness, it's the fear of failure, it's the fear of death. Often what's driving us is our fear. And the good news of the gospel and of Psalm 34 is that the fear of God frees us from all of these other fears. It frees us from all of these other fears. That is why we fear and prioritize God first, so that we don't have to live in shackles to these other lesser fears. David, he understands this personally. And Psalm 34 is written in response to a time in which David let his fear of something other than God control him and cause him to forget who God is and who called David to be. And so David, he, he beckons us to look at his own life and to see it as a cautionary tale, to examine the shape of his life, his story, to see ourselves in it, to put ourselves in his shoes, and to learn from David the importance of the fear of the Lord. Uh, if you notice when we read the psalm out loud, if you were looking at your Bible, you might have seen that there's a preface to the note, to the psalm. There's a, there's a note that's written that tells us of the historical context in which Psalm 34 was composed. I want to read it to you. It says this. This is kind of happens right before verse 1. It says this, Psalm 34, of David, so it's written by David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. The story being referenced here happens in 1 Samuel 21, Old Testament book. It's, it's not a very well-known story, but it's a really fascinating one. And so if you wanted to turn to 1 Samuel 21, I don't know what it is in the paperback, this one, but I have it in my notes. 1 Samuel 21, we're going to pick up in verse 10. 1 Samuel 21, 10. David, he's been called by God to be the second king of Israel. He is on the run from the first king of Israel, Saul, and he's going to end up hiding in the territory of a neighboring king, the Philistine, king of Gath, Ashish, who Psalm 34 refers to as Abimelech, okay? Uh, Abimelech, in, in the preface, it's one of the ways that Philistines used to refer to their rulers, like Egyptians call the rulers Pharaoh, Romans call their, their rulers Caesar, Philistines call the rulers Abimelech. And so let me read some of the, uh, read you the story, and then we'll go back and kind of fill in some details. This is 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 22, chapter 22, verse 1. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands, and he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? So this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, if you are at all familiar with the story of David and some of the details, you, you, if you're not, you might miss what's shocking about this text. There's a lot. There's a Samson's sword. It's actually the very first time David is ever pictured as being afraid. In the whole Bible, it's the first time David is afraid. And if you know anything about the story of David, he is known for his courage. 
This is a guy who has grown up as a shepherd in the wilderness. He has protected his family's sheep from bears and lions. This is a guy who was so fearless, so confident in God's protection that he fought lions, bears. As a teenager, he was not even old enough to go to battle, not even old enough to be a soldier, and he fought the baddest Philistine warrior, Goliath. Goliath was this man who was so large and intimidating that every single trained Israelite, every grown man, every soldier, even King Saul, the biggest Israelite, was afraid of him. And the story is so good, I want to read just a tiny bit of it. You don't have to turn here. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32 through 37. David, he, he hears Goliath mocking the Israel army. I just want to give you a picture of David's character. And he sees the soldiers cowering in fear, and so he goes to Saul, the king of the nation, this is what he says to the king. First, yeah, this is, he's bold. David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and I love this, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God." And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David, he strikes down Goliath with a stone from a slingshot. And sometimes, like usually when you tell kids the story, that's where it ends. But actually, he takes the giant's own sword and he cuts his head off. <laughs> I, told, I remember telling one of my kids that when he was a little kid. And for some reason, like whenever you know, people think of David with a sling, he, he's, he clung to the sword cutting the head off story. And so that was, oh yeah, David cutting Goliath's head off. Um, and he just loved that part. So, but, but David, he goes on right to be this warrior. He's promised by God that he will be the king of Israel. He is a picture of courage. But something happens in David's life that causes him to forget who God is, to forget what God has done in his life. And the text doesn't really say, we don't really know what happened. We could make some guesses maybe, but I'm not sure. We know that somewhere David lost the fear of the Lord, the priority of putting God first, and he became afraid of the Philistines, a people he had once defeated, a people whose greatest warrior, Goliath, was someone he already conquered. It's really interesting, this story, it says that uh, David is found in Gath, right? This is where the story takes place in the psalm. That's Goliath's hometown. He had defeated their like hometown hero, and 1 Samuel 20 says David's actually carrying Goliath's sword. That's probably how they knew who he was. Like someone's like, this guy's walking in with this massive sword. And they're like, dude, that guy's got Goliath's sword. And King Achish, he, he, was probably, he was probably even there when David killed Goliath. Or he would have definitely known this story in their history. But now David, because of his fear, he's utterly unrecognizable. In his fear, he pretends to be something he isn't. David, he's not being shrewd and acting like a madman. He's denying his true identity. He has already defeated these people, and now he hides who he is. He pretends not to be the warrior king of Israel. He has lost his way. So while fearing God made him this victorious warrior and this future king, fearing men made David a coward and an imposter. And he started so strong, and yet now we find David, he's fallen so far. I mean, he's, he's like spitting on himself. He's embarrassing himself. He, he's so, such an embarrassment that the king doesn't even want to mess with him. He doesn't even want to take him out. He's just like, whatever, get this guy out of here. And so, friends, this is the big point. When we don't fear God, when we don't put him first, we forget who he is and we forget who we are in him. Okay? That's the big point we did at Hebrew style. It's in the middle of the sermon, okay? 
When we don't fear God, we forget who he is and who we are in him. If there's anything I'd want you to remember, remember that. When we don't fear God, we end up denying our identity, we change our behavior, and we pretend to be someone else. Instead of being the person that God says we are, that God calls us to be. Remember verses, uh, 1 Samuel verse 21, or 1 Samuel 21 verses 12 and 13 says this, David took these words to heart, was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, and so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. And when I read that, I see a progression that's all too familiar. We forget to put God in the highest place, in the place of the highest priority. We forget to fear him. And, 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 then, and then we begin to fear something else. And then we begin to forget who we are. And then we begin to change our behavior. And we pretend to be someone we aren't. And all of a sudden, we're someone totally unrecognizable. We're, we're doing things we never thought we'd do. We're in places we never thought we'd be. And I think we could substitute our own names into this verse to place our own fears into it, add how we change our own behavior and pretend to be someone that we aren't. So if you imagine that verse again, and insert your name, was afraid of insert your fear, and so you change your behavior and pretend to do what? Let me give you some examples. And Nick, me, was much afraid of failure. And so he changed his behavior. He worked too often, pretended to be strong enough to handle everything. Sam was much afraid of his family, so he changed his behavior. He ignored their bigotry, pretended to be passive and unable to respond. Helen was much afraid of being alone, so she changed her behavior. She went too far, pretended to be okay with getting drunk, having sex. Frank was much afraid of his coworkers, so he changed his behavior. He never spoke up, and he pretended not to be a follower of Jesus. How would you fill this in? Where have you allowed your fear, whatever it is, to cause you to forget who God is? To cause you to forget who you are in him? Where are you pretending? The Psalms cry out for us to look to David's story, but to lay our own story on top of it, and to learn why and how we should fear the Lord to see that God has called us and given us an identity, just like David. He's given us a purpose. Just like David was a warrior called to be a righteous king over Israel, if you are in Christ, the Bible says you are an adopted son or daughter of a king. You are royalty. You have been given a great inheritance. And so if that's true, let us not pretend to live like orphans who need to hustle and beg and try to get something for ourselves, to get for ourselves which God has already promised us in Christ. Let us remember that to fear God is to put him first and to live our lives in light of that reality. Uh, I, I love that the psalm doesn't just point us there. It actually gives us some practical encouragements for how we can grow in the fear of the Lord, how we can keep God first in our lives, some ways that we can align our life with the fear of the Lord, uh, ways that we can put him first. And so I, I want to um, give five kind of practical ways that David encouraged us to live out our faith in the fear of the Lord from Psalm 34. So this is the first one. He says this in Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, bless and magnify the Lord. Bless and magnify the Lord. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. His, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The posture of a person who fears the Lord is one of praise or of gratefulness to God. When we put God first, we are reminded, even when we face hardships, of all of the wonderful things that God has given us. When we are called to bless God, 
We boast about God. We magnify God. We exalt in his name. That's why we sing praises. That's why we come here and do this worship thing. It's also, I would encourage you to find times in your own, like, week and day to praise God in your own life. Stream some worship music. Declare aloud all of the characteristics of God that you are thankful for, especially when it's hard. Second thing David gives us, practical way to fear the Lord, is to seek the Lord, to look to him. Number two, seek the Lord, look to him. Verses four through five say this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces shall never be ashamed. Sometimes what we need to do more than anything is simply and repeatedly to ask God for what we need, to daily, hourly ask God to deliver us from our fears, to remove from us any shame we have. When it says seeking, that idea of seeking, seeking is active, right? It's ongoing. It involves perseverance and persistence. I love the story in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus tells about the parable of the persistent widow. And it's the story of this woman who day and night goes to this judge and she, and he ple- she pleads her case to him. And he's like, you know, I need her help. I need help. And Jesus, he says about this woman that uh, it's an example for us that we ought to see her and not lose heart when we pray. And I don't know why God does this or why God has set it up like this for that he somehow desires us to repeatedly and consistently come to him. I really don't. I don't know why he doesn't quickly answer our prayers. I know sometimes his answers are no, but it says that God wants us to keep coming him, to keep asking, to keep persevering and seeking him. Third thing that David gives us as a practical way to fear the Lord, it's verse 30, or chapter 34, verse 8, it says, taste and see God's goodness. It's the third thing, taste and see God's goodness. It says this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David, he reminds us that our seeking God will never be in vain, that those who persevere will experience breakthroughs in God's goodness. And I don't think what David has in mind when he says taste is like, you know, little sip, taste, little tiny drink. I think he's saying like taste, like revel, savor, Taste deeply the goodness of God. Experience firsthand for yourself that God is trustworthy and good. So so we don't have to just come here and learn stories in the Bible or read about them in books about God's goodness. We can experience that for ourselves. That's what God wants us to do, is to experience for ourselves that we have our own testimony of how good he tastes. That when he becomes our highest priority, when he becomes our refuge, we could say to another person, God, God is good. I've tasted and I've seen. I want you to taste and see. If I'm 100% honest with you guys, this year, this year has been like brutal for our family. Uh, It has been the hardest year for my wife and I by far as parents. Just been a challenging year. It's been the hardest year I can remember for our finances. Uh, I started a small business. It looks like it's probably not going to make it. Um, Just all these things, right? All of these fears, all these challenges. But I can tell you, God has proven himself faithful time and time again. He has provided in ways I would have never imagined. He has provided encouragement that we could never have expected. And while on one hand, this has been like, seriously, one of the hardest years I can remember, I would say without a shadow of a doubt that God has proven himself to be faithful and good in the midst of our trial. And I know that would be true for you. And so taste and see for yourself his goodness. Number four, fourth thing that David gives us is a practical way to experience and to live out uh, the fear of the Lord. He says this, turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. Psalm 34, verses 13 through 14. Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. If we are to put God first, there's going to be a natural result. As we fear him, the natural result is that it would change our behavior. 
Whatever we fear changes our behavior. Just as David's fear uh, of the Philistines changed his behavior, so too should our fear of God change our behavior. But the difference is that when we are living in the fear of God, we don't become pretenders, okay? Catch that. We actually become more of ourselves, more like the people God created us to be. When we live in obedience to God, we actually become more authentic versions of ourselves, not less. Because he made us, and we are then living aligned with the way that he called us and designed us to live. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5.17, if that verse is true, it says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And maybe for some of us, it would be helpful to think about obedience in this way, that it's not changing into something you aren't yet. That's not what obedience means, changing into something you aren't yet, but to stop pretending to be something you aren't anymore to be your true self, to live the way God has designed you from the beginning and the foundation of the world to live to be. We demonstrate the fear of the Lord when we live authentic lives of obedience and righteousness. Okay, the last thing, point five, that we have here is a practical way to live out the fear of the Lord is to seek peace, to seek peace. This happens, in, so you see this in verse 14. It says, seek peace and pursue it. Very simple. The final way the psalmist gives us to live in the fear of God is to be a person who seeks peace. Not some kind of cantankerous person, not a person who seeks to create strife or conflict. And so maybe some of you have the impression that what radical Christianity looks like, like really serious Christians, are grumpy people posting offensive things on Facebook, okay? Um, Yes, there are times when there are things that people should, you know, post something about or stand up to But it should be our goal as Christians who fear the Lord to create and pursue peace as much and whenever we are able. There are injustices to stand up to. There are morals to be defended. But this should be done peacefully with wisdom, with our neighbor in mind, with an aim toward the common good. The fear of the Lord should drive us to seek and pursue peace with those around us, not conflict and strife. So today we all come in here, different places. I get that. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you feel like, man, I'm in this great place, this great season. My relationship with God is amazing. I'm on this mountaintop. If that's who you are, man, be glad. Psalm 34 says, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his eyes, his ears toward their cry. Whenever the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. If you are doing well, if you're in a great season, awesome. But remember how quickly things turn. David went from defeating giants to slobbering all over himself and pretending to be someone he wasn't. Just like physical gravity is real, it's easier to descend a mountain right than to climb it, so too is spiritual gravity. Something, you know, it's really interesting. In my, you know, life as a pastor, I haven't been around forever, but I'm amazed at how quickly something can go wrong in someone's life and they can just lose a sense of who they are and they can so quickly find themselves in situations they never imagined. I don't even know how I got here. I don't even know how I got in this place, how things got so bad. It's easy to fall, to lose the fear of the Lord, and to start pretending to be someone we aren't. So be on your guard, lest you fall. But maybe you're coming in here and you're like, man, I'm struggling. Like, I'm, I didn't even want to come today. Uh, I don't even know if any of this faith stuff is real. Psalm 34, it offers encouragement for you as well. This is verse 18 through 19. It says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Sometimes when we are at the bottom, we are the closest to God. If you are tired, or you're struggling, or you feel like you failed, or not even feel like you know you failed, take heart. God is near to the brokenhearted. 
The text says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. God doesn't promise an easy journey when we follow Jesus, but he promises his own nearness and that ultimately he will deliver us from all of our afflictions. So today, even if you feel like a massive failure, you, you, you know, take heart. David, he wrote this psalm in response to probably one of the, the darkest and worst times of his life. And yet God was gracious and he rescued David in spite of his lack of courage, in spite of his failure, in spite of his sin. And at the heart of Christianity is a God who is near to the brokenhearted, who saves and delivers broken people. We mentioned in the beginning that this psalm is that Hebrew acrostic, and there's those two verses that didn't fit that pattern, verse 6 and verse 22. Again, not exactly sure why those don't, but it seems pretty obvious that's an intentional decision. Those verses, this is verse 6. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And as I thought and meditated about those verses, I really can't help but think about the cross. In Hebrew, verse 22, it actually begins with the word redeem, the Hebrew word for redeem. And I think these two verses point us towards how God actually redeems a life through Jesus. How God made it possible that none who take refuge in him will be condemned. When I read verse 6, I can't help but think about one poor man, Jesus, who cried out to God, but God was silent. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't hear him. How in that moment, Jesus took on the punishment, the rejection, the wrath that we deserved so that we might receive the favor, the salvation, the refuge, the open arms of the Father that he deserved. Jesus was unheard so that when we cry out in our poverty, when we are that poor man, we might be heard. And so some of us need to cry out to God today. We need to cry out to ask him for salvation. We need to cry out to ask him for help, to ask him for rescue, for refuge. And I would just say, don't be arrogant. If that's you today, cry out to the Lord. Fear him. Put him first. Not your fear of others, not your fear of of what it looks like. Cry out to God and ask him for help. Run to Jesus. It's his death that makes our redemption possible. And so for you, maybe it's the first time, maybe it's the thousandth time, join me in praying and crying out to God, asking him to save us and to teach us what it means to fear the Lord. Let's pray. God, we cry out to you right now, saying that we need you, that we need your help, that we need your rescue, that we need to learn what it means to fear you in all things. God, I firmly believe that you have a calling on each person in this room, that you've given them an identity, that you've given them a purpose. And I pray, God, that as we fear you, that we would live that identity, that we would be people like David, warriors, kings, God, queens, that we would be people who who live the identity that you've given us in our workplace, in our family, in our home. God, help us not to fear you or help us not to fear other things more than you. We need you. We need you, Lord. We cry out to you for help this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.